And if you're sitting, staring at a screen for hours on end, of course, you're going to feel fried at the end of the day. So you, you need to move. I was saying to people, just move every 20 minutes. Go and look out of the window, move away from that screen. Go and grab a cup of coffee, go and, you know, look out of the window, go and walk up and down the stairs, whatever you need to do, 10 star jumps, whatever it is, but get away from that screen. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with Dr. Helena Bosky. She's a neuroscientist, former ballerina, and we're talking about why we do what we do, which is the title of her book. And we're diving into some of her favorite topics, the things that the pharmaceutical industry and maybe HR departments around the world hate her for. Feedback. I get her to rant about feedback. It's fab. But it's why are we doing it? Let's get clear about what we're doing, why we're doing it, and what would make an impact. If our essence for feedback is improve the performance of somebody for the future, she's got some great tips on how to do this, how it works, how the brain absorbs the feedback we give people. And ladies and gentlemen, the shit sandwich does not work. It might make you feel better, but it is having no performance improvement on your team. And what else do we talk about? We talk about the entrepreneur's brain. Her PhD was on the brains of entrepreneurs. So we talk about what drives entrepreneurs. We talk about why post-COVID maybe we're more intolerant, why road rage has gone up, why our sensitivity to others and our empathy has come down. We talk about beliefs and how you might understand somebody's belief and how you might move past that with some of your colleagues. I had a fantastic conversation. I enjoyed it immensely. I'm sure you will too. Hi. Hi, I'm Helena Borsky, and I'm a psychologist that specializes in applied neuroscience, especially in the workplace, but throughout our life. And you don't normally sound like this. I have had a bad bout of laryngitis. My voice is deeper than it, used, than it normally is. But people are saying they quite like it, so I might keep it. Excellent. <laughs> and so what do you do? Well, I work with groups of people talking about the brain. I, what I do in a nutshell is I talk about the brain in a way that I hope will make sense to people. We're all struggling on this planet together. We're coping with uncertainty. We're dealing with other people's whimsies. You know, it's just a strange and colorful and unpredictable life we're all leading and we're all trying to make sense of it. So I try and bring some science to help make sense of it. And you've written a great book, Why We Do What We Do, to try and share that with other people. Yeah, that book came out just as COVID was erupting around us and I was trying to pull it back and say, there's more I want to be writing. I could see people responding to this 
a strange phenomenon that was unfolding around us. And I could see that human behavior, we were learning so much about human behavior even then. We've learned a lot more since. But I had so much more to say, and I probably would be able to write a whole other book now based on what I've just seen happening over the last three years. But the book is designed to help people understand the science in a simplified format. So if it's written for non-scientists to get hold of the science so that they can take greater responsibility for their own brain health and the brain health of the people around them. So maybe we pick up on that, just say, dive into COVID and what you think maybe some of the legacies are. I went to visit a high school in New York called the Aviation High School, where they teach teenagers, boys and girls, to become aircraft engineers. And so the place is full of engines and they're stripping engines and building engines and doing fabrication. Just the type of place that I would have died to have gone to school in. But the, the principal said, the strangest thing is that the children have not reconnected or redeveloped or come back to school with the same level of interpersonal skills as they had pre-COVID. He said, pre-COVID, 500 kids in the cafeteria, it would have been like walking out into the football stadium. It would have just been mayhem. They all came back after COVID. He said, you could hear a pin drop. He said, these children have been changed profoundly forever, probably. So what are some of the things that you're thinking? Well, let's hope not forever. The brain has a remarkable way of wiring around what it gets thrown at it. So, well, the word, the thing that gets demonized during a pandemic is, of course, touch. And the word contagion is from the Latin with and touch. So, you know, touch becomes something that's very frightening for people because we were, thought we were spreading the, the virus to other people. When we touch and when we connect, we produce a chemical called oxytocin. And this helps us bond and love and trust and feel close to people, especially the people that we're used to being with. And when we are removed from that environment and we're not able to touch and we're not able to connect or hug or cuddle or shake a hand, oxytocin levels start to lower. And the whole of the, you know, the, all the lockdowns that we had, one after the other in the UK particularly, were punishing for people, particularly because we hoped to emerge from one and then we found ourselves going back. Every time we went back into a lockdown, our chemicals in the brain were affected and people found that they, you know, were more anxious, that they weren't able to feel part of anything, any social community. We're very sociable creatures and oxytocin levels were lowering all the time. So scientists have predicted that our ability to empathize will have degraded as a result of, you know, all of this isolation. Loneliness is certainly on the rise across the world. It is something we need to pay attention to. It will... I'm hoping that we will get back there, but it's going to take longer to cope with the effects of COVID than COVID itself, because we have to get the brain to rewire again. I mean, I remember reading articles saying, will we ever shake hands again in a business setting? And I think that's back to normal. I mean, there was a while where people would go, are we, aren't we? And some people would sort of bump elbows, but I don't think anyone's done that to me in a little while. Well, people were horrified they saw me because I was just throwing my arms around everybody. <laughs> this is who I am. I'm sorry. I mean, I went to a, I was speaking at a conference where they had different colored lanyards and the green one was, you know, you know, take me, I'm yours kind of thing. The, the orange one was, I can shake a hand, but don't come too close. And the red one was stay away, but I'm here. And by the end of the first day, they'd all changed colors. So I think they'd all gone up. <laughs> and then they started to panic and went back down again. So. So we ran a number of workshops throughout COVID when, the, when, you know, when the lockdown was being lifted. And people would turn up and same thing, you know, you, you, people, I, I'm not 
I'm not shaking. I'm not shaking hands. And then that, that might be the first person in the room. And then the next person came in and you'd have sort of 20 people in the room. And then the end, the person went, you know, sod it. We're breathing the same air, whatever. I'm, I'm all in. It is our attitude to risk, isn't it? And that is a really, that's been an interesting topic. So some of the topics that I've been speaking about are around human connections, attitudes to risk, how we get people to be a unified workforce again when we've had people separated in different parts of the country. But we're still very much working in a virtual world. You know, there are still, I run a lot of sessions virtually. I had to learn. I had resisted for years doing anything online. I was a face-to-face speaker. That was it. I was running training programs and dealing with people who were right in front of me. And then I realized that if I didn't learn how to work online, I wouldn't be able to eat. So off I went and had to learn how to do all of this stuff. And I'm still doing a lot. I've just, my face-to-face world has also, thank goodness, bounced back. But I much prefer being face-to-face. So it's interesting because again, there were people were saying, well, we'll never be back face-to-face. What's your, what, from a brain perspective, why do I get to the end of the day exhausted on Zoom and exhilarated it face-to-face? It's how you get energy and how you give energy. So what happens, and it was really, really interesting what you said, you know, people at the beginning of, I remember tw- March 2020, May, June, July, people going, right, you can work from home forever. And now they're regretting that decision. You don't generalize about the future when you're in the middle of something like COVID. I mean, we are so bad at planning. And I was saying to people, don't make big decisions. Don't make big decisions about the future in the middle of something that's utterly, you know, unusual. You've got to, you've got to roll with the punches. You've got to be, you know, we talk about managing change. You can't manage something that's unmanageable. We've got to learn to roll with the punches more. But so to answer your question, what happens when we're paying attention is that we are draining resources from this part of the brain here, which is our frontal lobe. And this is underdeveloped in the teenagers. So if I said rational judgment, good decision making, you know, logical thought, and then I said it's underdeveloped in the teenage brain, it all makes sense. But it behaves like a teenager. So it doesn't fully form till we're 25. And it's very susceptible to environmental influences. So the frontal lobe is really wiring itself around your culture, your, you know, your, your caregivers, things that you're receiving all the time for your life. So it's very much a nurture it's a result of nurture if you like and but we need it we need it to pay attention but even all the way through our lives it's drained easily we we suffer from decision fatigue so you know if you get to the end of the day you've made decisions all day you literally won't be able to decide what you're eating that evening because you'll have used up your decision making so you know so i make terrible decisions when we go shopping at the end of the day when we're starving hungry and we can't make good decisions anyway so this gets easily drained and, and it's also, if you've been paying attention and really concentrating, you start to get very hungry because it's an energy hog. It just, it just consumes vast amounts of energy. So we have to give it regular reboots. And, and if you're sitting, staring at a screen for hours on end, of course, you're going to feel fried at the end of the day. So you, you need to move. I was saying to people, just move every 20 minutes. Go and get a, go and look out of the window, move away from that screen. Go and grab a cup of coffee, go and, you know, look out of the window, go and walk up and down the stairs, whatever you need. Do do 10 star jumps, whatever it is, but get away from that screen. Let your brain take a bit of a breather and come back. And exercise is also brilliant because even a 20-minute walk can pump a lot of oxygen through the brain. So we do need to look after that part of the brain because it's what we need for good decision-making and for sustained attention, both of which we're not good at. 
there's two things that I'd love to dive back into with you. One is when you say people made decisions in the midst of something, so many CEOs, clients, and others I've spoken to, they're like, oh yeah, we hired Fred. And now Fred can never come to our office. And we're back in the office. Because Fred's somewhere probably on some remote island in Scotland. Well, and we had, I had one client who said they'd hired somebody remote and that person has quit because she's gone to get a job in a company in her city because actually she wants to go and hang out with human beings rather than be their person at the end of the Zoom link. And then you also said something about change. You can't manage change. People spend their lives managing change. Because if you can't manage something that's unmanageable, change by its nature is, it's, it's like trying to manage water. You know, it's, it's, you can't do it. The best we can do, and then, then worse, we tell people to embrace change. I mean, that's, horrible. Change and uncertainty are the two of the worst things you can throw at the human brain. So the human brain's never going to love either of them. But the, more, the most we can do is give, is give ourselves the ability to cope with changing and constantly changing circumstances. So we've got to be able to roll with it. We've got to be able to flex and adapt and, and develop a, a, a mental fitness, a cognitive agility that helps us do this because, you know, COVID ended and then Putin invades Ukraine. Then we get used to that and we shouldn't have done, but, you know, we're not paying so much attention or some people aren't. And now we've got a cost of living crisis. There is stuff that's going to be going on all the time. There's no end point. And the human brain, although it really doesn't like change and uncertainty, it's when we're faced with those things and we start to learn how to deal with those things that we start to become better at coping. And so what we want and what we need are two different things. And we, we need to face uncertainty to be able to deal with uncertainty. We need to face adversity in order to deal with adversity. We don't love it. We can't embrace it. We can't manage it. But we can learn to respond effectively to it. There's no end point. It's not a process that you can close down at the end. Well, I was chatting to a guy who does SAP implementations. And I said, is it possible to do an SAP implementation and be happy? And he said, no. He said, there's this thing called the valley of despair. And that's what we're going to do to the employees when we do this ERP implementation. He said, all we can do is we can try and make it as small as possible. And we can help educate them on why. So that when they're in the valley of despair, they've got something to hang on to, which is like there is light at the end of the tunnel. There's a why. There's like This is in service of something else. They'll only feel comfortable with that if the why of the project fits with the why, why they're working there. Well, and so he said exactly that. He said, you go and you find somebody on the shop floor and you say, is there something I could do for you that would make your job easier? And he said, then that becomes the context for your digital transformation for exactly that reason, to fix a thing for them. So as long as there's something in it for them. Yeah. And they know why they're there. I mean, there's a lovely story. It's very well known, but that the janitor that was mopping the floor when, oh, it's, it's sort of, you know that story, the apocryphal story. And he says, I'm, Mr. President, I'm helping, I'm helping to put a man on the moon. And if we understand the connection to the greater cause, that's great. Most people can't and don't. They might be working for, you know, for other reasons, but they, as long as their own personal why fits with or is in some way connected with the larger corporate why then you get this you'll get this motivation but that you know that whole value of despair thing it, you know people will leave at that point and you often lose good people at that point because they don't un one they don't understand what's going on and two 
the minute they think they're coming out, something else gets thrown at them and back they go again. So it's just... If you've done it badly, it will keep getting done badly. Yeah, no, exactly. And so one of the other things you mentioned was people are more intolerant. Now, I don't know whether I'm more intolerant now than I was before COVID, but one of the things that drives me demented, I'll be on now what is often an empty train carriage, but why does the person sitting next to me feel the necessity to have a video call on their phone at full blast? Why can't they put headphones in and why are they not embarrassed? That didn't used to happen. Well, no, and this is what I mean about, you know, when you're used to not being with people, you you lose your sense of social responsibility and awareness. And because we've, we've lived in our own little bubble worlds, and we've just continued those on, even though we're now around other people. So we don't care as much. You know, we already... We'd already entered the world of the selfie, the age of the selfie. Coming into COVID, people were taking hundreds of selfies, you know, coming into COVID. That just got massively worse because that's all we, we only had ourselves to, to entertain ourselves. I mean, you know, that's, that was it. And so when you're faced with anything unpredictable, uncertain, unusual, there's a little structure inside the midbrain called the amygdala. And this sounds the alarm bells. People say it's linked to fear. It's, it is sometimes linked to fear. But the thing about the amygdala is when it's damaged, we can't make a decision. So it's not just a fear structure. It actually starts, the, you know, starts this whole electric, the, the circuitry that goes, this chain reaction that goes through the body that sets off our fight or flight response. It's our threat response. So the amygdala doesn't have to have much to activate. And because we have lived with ongoing uncertainty, the amygdala has been switched on over and over again. So effectively, we've switched on a system that's designed for a saber-toothed tiger or a lion or a tiger or a bear. We have switched this on over and over again, even though we're not facing those threats anymore. And we can't do anything with it because that system's designed to get us to move, to fight or run. And we're not moving. We're sitting at a desk all day. So, you know, we, we need to move. The body... The brain needs the body to move and the body needs the brain to feel that it's moving. You know, the body's not just there to, you know, to sit in a, in a room all day. It has to move to oxygenate the brain. So the amygdala switching on all the time has meant that it's probably enlarged because it's been, been put on constant action and reaction. And so what's happening is that we're reacting and responding to the tiniest thing. It's made us hypersensitive. It's made us hyperintolerant prone to anger. When, we're, when we felt fear for a long time, anger then helps us, gives us the strength to act. So anger and fear go hand in hand. So we're switching on these systems when we, you know, when we don't really need to, but we are because it, the world is horribly uncertain. And we're switching these on now with everything. So we are be- becoming much more easily offended, much more angry. You know, road rage is on the rise. And that's because the brain has just got used to switching on these systems over and over again. Do you think often angry people are fearful in the, in the workplace? I mean, who knows? Because, you know, anger can hit you for whatever reason and there's a trigger. You know, each person's trigger will be different. But you see, we, we label emotions and positive and negative and we think anger is a negative emotion. And anger and fear are both very important protective emotions. They are there to protect us, to give us the, you know, we've got to be able to know what's dangerous in our world. We've got to be able to respond quickly. 
we've got to be able to do something about it. And anger mobilizes us. You know, it really does. You know, when we're angry, we fire off angry emails and we are, you know, you know, clicking and sharing and, you know, tweet, tweeting and gets us into hot water, as we know only too well. So different people will get angry for different things. But the reason we use anger is because we are worried or anxious or fearful about something. We just use anger to give us the strength to deal with the fear. And can you manage those behaviours? Is it possible to be an angry person and become a calm person? Right. We talk about angry people and actually it's it's the behavior we're seeing or the response we're seeing. So we, you know, it's important to separate the emotion from the person. The person might use that emotion a lot. So we say they're always angry. When you start to think about emotion, you start to use other parts of the brain to make sense of why you might be experiencing that emotion. You start to rationalize why you might be feeling that way. And then you can apply a different set of thinking tools to help you deal with it. But the key thing to this is not to respond straight away. You need to buy yourself some time. Pause, take a break, go to sleep on it. Don't respond immediately. And that way, if you don't react straight away, you don't tend to overreact. And that's that's the most important thing is just to take a breath, go talk to somebody else, get their perspective, write it down, try and put words around it because this helps you think about it. And in doing that, you actually start to calm yourself down or at least you give yourself additional strategies to help you address the situation that's made you angry. Okay. And I think often in the workplace, people are thinking about helping manage behaviors and it's actually not a behavior. There's a belief and are there tools to help you or things you can do to uncover belief? Can you change people's beliefs? Well, beliefs are often put in the brain from a very early age. You know, we develop a set of beliefs around who we are. We, you, we, the brain has to use these mental categories called schemas and everything that we then receive. So these are sort of like filing cabinets in the brain. So we have schemas about ourselves. You know, we know that, you know, you might say, well, you know, I don't like onions, or I like the color black, or I like going to that restaurant, or I like that type of person. So we have, we develop beliefs or schemas about ourselves, about other people, about social environments, about, you know, about everything. We have these schemas. And every time we receive new information, it gets inserted into the schema. So it's almost like, you know, filing it away. Now, theoretically, every time we receive new information, that might contradict a schema, you should update that schema. But we don't. The more experienced we get, the more fixed we become in our thinking. So what we do is we use incoming new information to justify our own belief or our own schema. So we actually, and this is what we call confirmation bias, you know, we just take in information that conveniently confirms or endorses or reinforces what we believe we already know. Or... If the information we're receiving is a complete contradiction of what we already know, we discount the new information and we find evidence to discount it. Often, if I'm sort of having a conversation with clients about this, I pick on people who might believe the earth is flat because I just, I just feel as though the chances of somebody being in the room who believes that are quite rare, whereas we each believe our own random bits of shit, don't we? I mean, it's just, right, it's just, it can be as innocuous as I hate mushrooms. But somebody said that to me the day, when did you last eat a mushroom? And they're like, when they were nine, you know, like they've got, actually, they might find there's a version of mushrooms that they quite like, but they're not prepared to take a chance. 
That's right. And your, your early beliefs that get put there, they, they, you know, people say it's naught to seven, naught to five. Your early years are effectively your most critical when it comes to forming beliefs that you will then rely on for the rest of your life. So if something happens to you as a child, you carry that through with you. And when we talk about it, when we think about it, we strengthen that memory trace. So we strengthen that memory associated with that original initial belief. And then we just make sure that that's the belief we carry through. And it takes quite a lot to dislodge that belief. You know, I saw some behavior the other day that I thought was fascinating. The mother was talking to the child about an incident that happened when the child was four. And I don't know about you, the child is now, I think, 10. I, I've got very few memories of things that specifically happened to me when I was four. But because the mother kept saying to the child, this is a thing you don't like. She's thinking, if they'd never mentioned it again, the child would have completely forgotten it. It's like, there's not a reaction from the child, it's a reaction from the parent. Oh, yes. I mean, a lot of our beliefs that we get put, you know, we lay down in our own brain are the result of the beliefs we're given by our caregivers, our parents, you know, godparents, uncles, aunts, grandparents. The beliefs that we form are often there because we're inheriting the beliefs of, of people around us. You just wonder how many people would pick the religion of their parents if they had no religion until they were 25? No, exactly. I, and it's interesting, isn't it? And then you see the, the DNA we drop into our environment. Not every gene gets a chance to express itself. So the genes that then do express themselves are entirely dependent on the environment we find ourselves in. So you can have a, you can be born with a predisposition to something, depression, schizophrenia, bipolar, you could be born with a predisposition because it could have been passed down genetically. But if the environment doesn't then bring that out, then you're protected. But if the environment then is such that you are likely to suffer from that, then, you know, it's a perfect storm. And one of the things that I'm often coaching clients around conflict and this belief often, I have this rational view. I personally have a rational view and I can't, and so you see the tension or the volume escalate and people are starting to articulate. They're just sort of throwing facts at each other. And nobody's listening. And so often it's because you can't believe that the other person would not believe what you believe, right? You get up in the morning, you brush your teeth. Everybody's like you. By lunchtime, you're surrounded by idiots. And I say, if you think this might be a belief, say, what facts would I have to give you so that you'd be prepared to change your mind on this? And if people say nothing, then you've struck a belief. Whereas if they say, oh, well, this, 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 and this, well, we could negotiate. But are there any other ways? I think the best way to understand someone's belief system is to ask them questions about it. Literally just ask, find out why they think that, what evidence they've collected to support that, and really, really try and see the world through their eyes. Because we might believe that their belief is wrong, but it might be our belief that is the wrong, is, that's wrong. You know, we all come to everything carrying with us a set of assumptions and, and a, a version of reality that we've, see, our reality is just the result of information that's not complete, that we, the brain can't deal with complete information. It's just taking in bits of information, piecing it together based on what it thinks it knows, and then tells us that's reality. So we're all carrying around a different version of reality. So even though we might be absolutely convinced that what we believe is true, the chances are that what we believe is also 
faulty. So we've got to find out what they see because it's only when we find out and try and see the world through someone else's lens do we understand that we haven't got the complete picture anyway and we try and see it through their eyes. That actually, in listening to other people, only then do they listen to you. They're not going to, no one listens to anyone else unless somebody has taken the time to listen first. So the listening has to start with someone. But we're very good at being in broadcast. I mean, look at us now, we're in broadcast. <laughs> but we're very good at this. You know, we're very good at telling people what we think we know. And look, at, I mean, I'm doing, doing it myself. But we're not very good at listening to what is going on in someone else's head. And it's that we, that we need to do much more of. And, you know, I always try and listen to different views of people who are also scientists. No scientist agrees with, you know, there are lots of scientists that disagree with each other, even though they're all dealing with science. So it's really good to collect different versions of science and then try and work out somewhere in the middle of all of this is an interesting answer. But it's not the answer. There's no such thing. And then we'll do another experiment and we'll move on. And then we'll do another. And all of that will be proved wrong anyways. I suppose it takes us ish to feedback. The F word. <laughs> Particularly when people start talking about annual appraisals. It's just like, stop doing it. Get your time back. Everybody hates them. And I don't know whether you've got any evidence for this, but I, I can't find any evidence anywhere that anyone's ever proved that an annual appraisal made an improvement in anybody's performance, which ostensibly is the reason why they're being done in the first place. But what's your what's the science behind feedback? Oh God, this is the I mean, this is one of my biggest, biggest bugbears. I was getting into huge trouble during COVID because I was telling people, please don't do appraisals at this time. You know, don't do it. And I when people go, can you stop saying that? Especially HR. HR hate me. The one group that sees some value in the appraisal process is they say, but when we come to fire somebody, we at least need to have documented something. Otherwise, they'll take us to a tribunal. And you're like, oh, okay. Well. I mean, if that's the case, then be honest about it. This is your firing evidence that we're collecting against you. So the thing about the feedback. So this is the thing that really, this really pisses me off is that they... You have to ask, what purpose is this serving? Why am I having this conversation? Am I having this conversation to make this person feel better about what they're doing, about what they're going to do? Am I giving them help and guidance to get them to do their job better in the future? And if that's the case, then why is it always looking back? You know, if you're, if you're, if you want to motivate somebody, focus on what they're doing well to lock in that behavior straight away. So, so wait till they've done something, focus on the specifics, and you need to be specific, specifics of what went well at that point in time so that they know what to repeat and they feel good about themselves. If you want to help them in the future, then make sure that they have something in the future to point that guidance at. If they're not going to repeat that thing ever again, don't bother. It's a waste of your time. Why would they even need to hear that? And, and if you're going to just feel better about giving them that feedback, then be honest about it. But don't do it for their benefit because it's for your benefit. And this is the thing. And also the word feedback. I mean, you know, if I said to you, Dom, I'm can I give you some feedback? I might as well be saying to you, Dom, can I please punch you in the stomach? It's the same effect. You know, we think, oh, no, what's coming? We activate all our pain responses we get prepared for the worst we never bounce out of these discussions feeling happy and when you start mixing so this is the other thing about feedback you see i told you don't get me started because i've got so much to say 
when we start, so let's say I'm giving you feedback. I'm going to use the typical feedback method, which is I'm going to give you a bit of praise. This is what you need to do, areas for improvement, which is really criticism, but they dress it up in a in a frilly dress and call it areas for improvement. And let's end on a positive. Good job. Well done. Dom, what the brain is designed to do is hook to the negative. It has to be able to see what's threatening and dangerous before it sees what's safe. That's the brain. It's, it's designed to keep us alive, to avoid death, to see the, you know, the threat in our environment. So when you put, even if you're putting two positives with a negative, so the ratio is two to one, and you think that's got to work, and it doesn't. You could do five to one, it wouldn't work. You could do 10 to one, it wouldn't work. The brain would still remember the one piece of negative information it's received, and that's what sticks like glue. So if you're going to give somebody, have a discussion with them about, you know, something, they're always late or the reports are always got errors and it's an attitude problem, have the conversation, be honest about it, tackle that, but don't dress it up. Don't waste your time with the positive stuff because it gets deleted anyway. Except it makes you feel better about the difficult conversation. It makes you feel better, but then whose purpose is it serving? I often ask rooms of people, would you tell me if I had spinach in my teeth? And there are always some people in the room who say no. And you're like, okay, difficult conversation from you. That's not going to happen anytime soon. That person is never going to give you any feedback about your performance. No. And, you know, we've got to think, you know, when you are, the one question I really hate is, what would you do differently next time? Why would you even ask me that? And is there going to be a next time? If there's going to be no next time, no. So when people say to me after the session, oh, we'll collect the feedback and send it to you. And I go, please don't bother. I'm not going to read it. Don't waste your time. (laughs) Unless I'm coming back to do something else to the same group of people on the same topic, I don't want to know because it's not helping me do my job. Yes, we've got to be humble. Yes, we've got to keep learning. But we are often our own worst critics. And we know when we've messed up. We know when we've, you know, done something and we we need to go back. And if you're, you know, learning and creativity and all of those things. And when my PhD was on the brain of the entrepreneur, I looked at the entrepreneur and entrepreneurial learning has to come with an element of low self-confidence because there's never going to be a good enough. And this is what keeps them going. So self-confidence and creativity do not, they're not, they're not correlated. In fact, low self-confidence and creativity are often correlated. So we've got to find a way to, you know, to be self-critical, to be a little bit humble, to be vulnerable, to, you know, to, to, to give ourselves to other people, but also learn that we're going to mess up. You know, that's life. We're going to mess up all the time. But as long as we're aware of that, and yes, you can find somebody who likes you and doesn't really mind how you feel and they'll give you the honest thing. But you, but you, we need, we, you know, we don't need other people to rub, you know, salt into the wound. If they're genuinely going to help us for the next time and there is a next time and what they say will make a difference, then absolutely, that's when you can throw the stuff at it. But do not feed back the, the stuff that's pointless you only feed back the stuff that's good when you look at the entrepreneur's brains low self-confidence creativity i've also read perception of risk was that something you also found perception of risk yes it does vary perception of risk well they're prepared to take a risk yet they do have a different sense of risk because they they view life as learning and really learning. One of the people I interviewed was Simon Woodruff. Now, Simon, I met him a couple of times, well, a few times, and he would always whip out a notebook. 
And he was, his curiosity was amazing. It was incredible. And he was finding the learning in every conversation, everybody he met. He would, you know, he was a collector of learning, of ideas, of, of insights. And that's how we need to see ourselves because that desire to learn, that curiosity comes from a place that says, I don't know enough. I will never know enough. I've got to keep learning. This person, and everyone can be a teacher if we allow it to happen. And higher prevalence of things like ADHD and dyslexia, or is that a myth? Uh, I don't know about that because I don't know enough about ADHD and dyslexia to know that I don't work in that area. And what I do know is that, you know, the ADHD brain is more inclined to distraction and has to learn to focus. So I'm very against medicating. I think we have to go to other things first, like looking at the sugar content and diet, looking at the amount of exercise that people are taking. And you'll find a lot of the time people who are being medicated for ADHD aren't exercising, they're eating a load of junk food, and they're not sleeping enough or early enough. So if you tackle those three things, um, I am sure that you wouldn't need to medicate as much as we do. Maybe there are chances, but you know, and this is a brain that just, if we don't feed our brains the right stuff and we don't sleep enough and we don't exercise enough, yes, of course, we're going to have problems. Of course, we're going to have problems. So we've got to you know, be much more responsible in the way that we're choosing to live. We can't just live to make really, really bad decisions and then think, well, let's go and get a pill now to fix me. We can do it ourselves. I mean, I just, you know, drug companies also hate me. Ella, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Well, my first degree was in Latin and I loved Latin at school. For me, it was a puzzle. And I loved my Latin teacher who was incredibly strict and very good for me because, you know, I would have been, going back to ADHD, I would have been drugged as a child. If ADHD was an available condition, as Ken Robinson called it, you know, was available, my mother would have drugged me. I know that I would have been drugged. So but I wasn't. I was sent to ballet, which was the best thing. At age two, I had ballet shoes made. Off I went to ballet. I then went to ballroom. I went to every kind of dancing thing. That I, and I grew up loving the arts, loving languages, loving... And then I loved Latin. And I needed discipline. I needed the discipline of dance. I needed the discipline of music to help me through. I loved that. But what I realized when I was in my late 20s, when I started studying psychology and learning and adult learning, and then I learned about neuroscience and mental illness and, and, you know, all of the stuff that opened up this whole new world. I realized I was really a scientist. I was a scientist hiding in, someone, in a body that actually was and a brain that was loving arts as well. So maybe I'm a bit of both, but I love the fact that I came to science to answer questions about what was going wrong in the workplace. That's when I started learning about science because I, why is this not working? Why, is, why are we doing this to people? Why aren't we looking at how the brain is set up and work with that? Why are we working against the brain's design? So that, and I realize now that I just love the world that science opens up and the, you know, the amount of, the rich amount of research and literature and, you know, studies that are coming out all the time. Because it's a relatively new science, neuroscience, but I absolutely love it. And I wouldn't be anywhere else now. And it's something that I want to, I want to spread my, spread my science to my, you know, what I know to everybody else because I just love it. I interviewed a guy called Eric Marcel for the podcast last week. And he coaches creatives who's, who are obviously wired differently to most people. And he said, really what he does is he 
coaches smart people to exist in a non-smart world. And so when you when you said your mother your mother would have drugged you, he said, "Look, he said people like why did why is it you go home and you fall out with your family at Christmas?" He said, "It's just because your brain is wired differently to theirs. You see the world differently to them." Well, I would argue that we are all creative. We're all born creative. We, you know, children give it a go. We just give it a go. And for people that we define as creative now have just been able to continue tapping into that. I mean, of course, I couldn't paint a Mona Lisa. By the way, it took, it took Leonardo 16 years to get that right. So, you know, but, you know, this is the thing. It's not something that it takes effort. Creative brains also, you know, they've been shown improvisation, have been shown they can switch off the frontal lobe because that can be our judge and jury and our critic. So they can switch that off more. So they allow the inner child to come out. But, you know, pa- pa- Pablo Picasso said, every child is an artist. The challenge is to stay an artist when we grow up. And we've got to tap into that. We create environments in the workplace that crush creativity. You know, we, we said to say to everybody, we need everyone to be, you know, we need innovation. We need creativity. And then you look at the environment they've created or they've built and it's going to be, you know, it's deadly. So we've got to tap into that again. And, and I think that maybe you'd look at somebody who's been painting for years and their brain would be wired differently. But I would argue that we all have a creative spark. We've just got to find it again and find that child within us. What books should people read? So other than picking up a copy of Why We Do What We Do, what else? What other books or authors? <laughs> well, Why We Do What We Do, yeah, it's not, I mean, it'll give you a good starting point i would say to but i would urge you to look at the amazing work of david eagleman who's one of the best neuroscientists out there love his work robert sapolsky who's a genius um, i would look at the behavioral economist dan early richard thaler daniel kahneman i love the work of simon sinek and Brené brown they make sense of everything around us and i love the work of matthew syed who's a real observer of life so i would just read as much as you can and talk to everybody. Everybody has got something to teach us. That's fantastic. Helen, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.